Good morning. It is Labor Day weekend. Uh, I know you all know that. You're very well aware of that. Um, with that in mind, I wanted to do a little excursus uh, into the topic of, of work and labor and what the Bible has to say about that, what our Lord has to say about that. And that's really the place to begin, right, right there, that last sentence. Christ is Lord. Jesus is King over absolutely every aspect of life. Nothing is to be excluded in terms of our understanding of his sovereignty and his rule and reign in all things. Nothing is to be excluded and nothing, actually nothing can be rightly understood when we try to exclude a certain area of our life. That area cannot be rightly understood, rightly lived out outside of the sovereign lordship reign and rule of Jesus because he indeed is, is the king. That then begs a question, a begs a question that we would do well to ask ourselves all the time. What if we're a follower of Jesus, if we are in fact disciples of Jesus, this question bears asking all the time, daily so, every one of us, every single one of us here, what areas of my life are excluded from his reign and rule? If he in fact is the sovereign Lord and King over all things, then what areas of my life am I living as though they are excluded from his reign and rule? Not that they really are, not that they really could be, but what areas of my life am I practically, personally, individually living as though they were not under his rule and, and, and reign? And where would we start? That's not enough just to kind of let that lie as a, a nebulous question, but perhaps even getting a, a bit specific. So maybe asking a question like this, drilling down into um, what things demand my attention, drive my energies, and in some ways perhaps even dominate my relationships, okay? So what, what things demand my attention, drive my energy, and in some cases even dominate my relationship. Put another way, what things are usurping his rule and reign? What are the, the big things that take up a lot of space in my life? And here's where we get to the topic of work. Okay? Um, no matter where our, we may work, inside or outside the home, no matter whether it's paid or unpaid, when it comes to the, the subject of work, what's our thinking? What is the grid? How do we understand that before the sovereign king and what it means to, to work uh, before Jesus? Um, consider the, I, don't, I didn't do the math and it really would be impossible to do because, well, in modern work schedules and such, but just think with me, the number of hours in a week, the number of uh, days of the week, weeks in the month, months of the year, years of our lives, when you start totaling it all up, proportionally speaking, of time that we put towards this thing we called work, again, whether unpaid or paid, in home or out of the home, no matter what it is, um, all of that needs to be lived under the reign and rule of Jesus, if it's to be lived rightly. So that's where we're going over the next few minutes. Um, 
Got a text for you, a lot of text for you, actually. Uh, these poor guys in the back, Chris was going through the paces, copying and pasting a lot of stuff this morning. Um, this first passage, 1 Thessalonians 4, verses 9 through 12, this is just one of those studies, one, one of those mornings where this is the, a passage that's going to set the tone for where we're going, but without actually drilling into it, because there's so many other texts that we need to look at as well. Okay, so obviously it's on the screen behind me. If you're trying to find that in your Bible, if you want to follow along there, that's fine. This is New Testament. This is one of Paul's letters, one of his earliest letters, uh, perhaps even his, his first, depending on what New Testament scholar you're reading. Um, it's in the midst of a bunch of T's. First, second, uh, it comes after, excuse me, first and second Timothy and Titus. You have first and second Thessalonians. This is first Thessalonians towards the end of the, of the letter. First Thessalonians 4 verses 9 to 12. All right, hear now God's word. Now, concerning brotherly love, you have no need for anyone to write to you. For you yourselves have been taught by God to love one another. For that indeed is what you are doing to all the brothers throughout Macedonia. We urge you, brothers, to do this more and more and to aspire to live quietly and to mind your own affairs and to work with your hands as we instructed you so that you may walk properly before outsiders and be dependent on no one. Let's pray for a moment before we go any further. Jesus, thank you for the songs that we have sung together and the texts that we have read together. And uh, just for this bit of time here, uh, you, you indeed are the king. You are the ruler, the sovereign one over absolutely everything. And we are simply living in accord to reality to the extent that we are submitting every area of our lives to you, including these, this big thing um, that takes up so much space in our days, this thing that we call work, whatever form it takes, whatever shape it may take. We pray that you'd help give us your eyes. We pray, please, would you give us your eyes as we see and think and process and, and live out what it is to, to work. We pray this in your name. Amen. Again, it's Labor Day weekend. What does that mean? What does that represent to so many of us? For many of us, that just represents the transition from summer to fall. No more pool days. Sorry, they, they, they shut it down. Uh, for some of us, that means a four-day weekend. Woohoo! Uh, for some of us, that means um, cookouts or uh, picnics or the start of football season or the Rings of Power premiere. I don't know. Anyway, um, so that's, that's, that's the, the, um, what it represents. The roots of Labor Day, in case you don't know, just a real quick, quick uh, history lesson there, is it was meant uh, historically as a tribute to the American worker uh, to, to um, celebrate and to dignify those who Work And it came out of the, the labor movement in the late 19th century and was actually became a federal holiday in 1894. I know that will change your life, knowing all that. But anyway, this might change your life, uh, this passage, when you take it seriously. Psalm 24.1. Psalm 24.1. Let's move from passing a th uh, history to eternal truth. Psalm 24.1 that really sets the tone for everything we're about to delve into here. The earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof, the world and those who dwell therein. The earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof, the world and those who dwell therein. No exceptions, no footnotes there. Um, the failure to stop and think, 
A failure to stop and think is the great mistake of our age. A setting our thinking and our lives counter to the one who is over all things is the mistake not just of our age but of all ages, of, of, of every age. I really I have a very simple, it's a simple point I want to make over the next few minutes. Um, very simple, and, it, and it, I've already alluded to it, really, and it's, it's just this. The gospel speaks to all of life. The gospel speaks to all of life. We need to hear this to let this come into every area of our lives, including, perhaps we should even say especially, this area that we, of, of what we call work. Three basic points. You've got the outlines where we're going in the next few minutes. Three basic, but they're huge points in terms of what the Bible has to say about work, or you could say even as the title of the message is a theology of work, and it's this. These three simple things, but they are so profound. One, work is good. How do we understand this thing we call work? The first thing the Bible has to tell us is from the very start, work is good. Secondly, work is bad. And then thirdly, how we live in the tension of those two realities, okay? That's where we're going in the next few minutes, okay? The first thing being the Bible says that work is good. It also says work is bad. And it also shows us how to live in that tension, okay? So from the very start, picking it up from the very beginning, we see that work is good. Genesis chapter 1. Genesis chapter 1, uh, verses 26 through 28. Genesis 1, verses 26 through 28. 28. Then God said, Let us make man in our image after our likeness, and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea, and over the birds of the heavens, and over the livestock, and over all the earth, and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So God created man in his own image, and the image of God he created him. Male and female he created them. And God blessed them, and God said to them, Be fruitful, and multiply, and fill the earth, and subdue it, and have dominion over the fish of the sea, and over the birds of the heavens, and over every living thing that moves over on the earth. And then skipping over to chapter 2, verse 15, The Lord God took the man and put him in the Garden of Eden to work it and keep it. All right, what do we see here? This is um, the creation mandate. And, and with this creation mandate, we see that we are commanded to work. It is a, an essential part of, of what it is to understand anything as far as this, this matter of, of work. We see that this is from the beginning, from the very, very beginning. Work is not part or partial or, or it's not part or a portion of the fall. Work is there from the beginning in creation, this command that we are given to work. It is not part of the fall. That is so important for us to reckon with. We are commanded to work. We are commanded to work and we were created to work. We are created in the image of a God who works. God is described again and again and again in the scriptures with these different images, different metaphors as a worker. He is described as a gardener, a shepherd, a potter, a physician, 
a metal worker, a vine dresser, a teacher, a whole host of other images. This is a God who works. The, the one true living God counter to the myths of the ancient world is a God who works and who delights to work. He works in creation, in, the, in making all things. He works in the sustaining of all things. He works in the, his work of salvation. Ours is a God the one true living God is a God who works, and we are made in His image according to His likeness, which is to say it is fundamentally human to work, made to work as part of our design specs to work. So the first and fundamental thing that one has to say when you're looking at what the Bible has, says about this topic of work is it is fundamentally good. It is fundamentally good. Why work? Why then work? What gives our work value? Again, I can't stress this enough. Whether it's in the home or out of the home, whether it's paid or unpaid, whether it's changing diapers or designing software, whether it's civilian or military, whether it's... Um, volunteer work, you know, out there in the community where people see you or maybe they don't see you, you know, whatever form it may be. And whether you're in the midst of work right now, maybe you're like going through a mid-career crisis, maybe you're a retiree and looking back on your work, how, how should you see it? Or perhaps you're sort of more towards the beginning of the race and you're asking big questions about, well, what career path might I take this is really important for us to understand. What does the Bible have to say first and fundamentally about work? What gives it value? Please hear me. It is not so that you can give money to the church. That is not what gives your work value. You should give money to the church, but that is not why, why God values your work. It is not in order that by having a workplace, you know, working in there and having a workplace, you can have a mission field to go to tell people about Jesus. You should, if you can, <laughs> in that place, in that space, love people enough to tell them about Jesus. But that is not what gives your work value. That is not why God said it's, it is good. It is not that you work to free up time to go do more important Jesus work. You know, giving you space to be able to do other things, you know, kingdom work, putting that in heavy, heavy air quotes there. That is not why God says your work is of value. Why then does he say your work is of value? He says your work is of value because my child, you were made to work and I value it. Full stop. That's why your work wherever, whenever, whatever form it takes is of value because that's how he sees it. That's how he sees it in and of itself. Again, the gospel speaks to all of life, including especially our work. Oh, how we need to hear this. Work is fundamentally, from the start, good. That's the first thing. But I said there's a tension. You can't have tension if you don't have a second point. So here's the second point. Work is also bad. The scriptures speak equally uh, forcefully here on this point as well. So now moving from Genesis 1 and 2 to Genesis 3, the fall. Genesis 3, 
just picking up midway through the pronouncements of the curse. Uh, Verse 16, Genesis 3, to the woman, he said, I will surely multiply your pain and childbearing. In pain, you shall bring forth children. Your desire shall be for your husband and he shall rule over you. And to Adam, he said, because you have listened to the voice of your wife and have eaten of the tree of which I commanded you, you shall not eat of it. Cursed is the ground because of you. In pain, you shall eat of it all the days of your life. Thorns and thistles it shall bring forth for you, and you shall eat the plants of the field. By the sweat of your face you shall eat bread, till you return to the ground. For out of it you were taken, for you are dust, and to dust you shall return. This is why work is hard. This is why sometimes work is miserable. This is why work sometimes has the labor, if you will that is so difficult and why we can even find suffering in the midst of work. It's because of the fall. It's because of the fall. The Genesis 3 shows us the, the answer as to why, why the futility of work. Why does it sometimes seem like we, we have nothing to show for it? It's loss of dominion. You were supposed to have dominion over the earth, but to the end of the day, you're going to be under the earth, is what we're seeing here in Genesis 3. Uh, the thorns the thistles, death itself. This is the fall. Come, come into this world, a loss of dominion. This is why work can be so dehumanizing. Some, so, many, so many of us could, could speak to that in so much of the work that we have done over the years. This is why so much of our work is unfulfilling. You know, there's no match to my gifts, right? I'm doing A, but I'm wired to do B. It's why it could be so dehumanizing. It's why there can be such unrealized potential in so many cases when it comes to work. Again, across the board, whatever form it may take, in home, out of home, paid, unpaid, whatever it may be, whatever, whatever it may be. This is the, the answer as to where is the, 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 the source, the futility. Where is the, what is the source of the futility of work? Genesis 3, the fall. Also, we have to speak not just of the futility of work, but the idolatry of work. The idolatry of work, where work becomes what we trust in. Work and the fruits of our work become what we depend upon for life. What we are looking to uh, in terms of comfort and ease or security and control or uh, standing and affirmation of others. All good things, but things we are meant to look to our creator for. But instead, we end up looking to the work for, or the fruits of the work for, and that's idolatry. That's, that's idolatry. It becomes what we trust. It becomes who we are. We get really confused and tangled up, confused as this, this admixture of, I am what I do. My identity, my purpose is wrapped up in my function, where I put my time. You think just how, what the knee-jerk reaction is of us as, as Westerners when we're introducing ourselves at, at, a, at a, some social function or whatever the case may be. And what is one of the first questions that you are asked and you will ask, what is it? What do you do? As though that's who you are. I mean, sometimes it, we might just do well, just as well to take the name tag and instead of saying, put, instead of putting your name on there, you know, put banker, Soldier, student, teacher, whatever, diaper changer, you know, 
put the but you know, that, that's my label. That's what I do. Because I think of myself, and I guess it's how you think of me as well, so I'll just go ahead and start with that. And there's something just profoundly wrong there, something that's gone wrong there. So that's the tension. That's the tension that we see here in work. Work is fundamentally good and fundamentally bad at the same time. There's a, there's a scene, in a classic film, uh, Chariots of Fire. Some of you may, may have seen this early 80s, I think it is. Um, it's wonders what they can do with a synthesizer and a soundtrack. But anyway, um, so one of the main characters, Harold Abrams, a very talented 100-meter sprinter. He's something, if you've seen the film, he's something you might say of the foil, the, 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 the mirror image of the other main character, Eric Little. Okay, so Harold Abrams, it's, it's the, the right before this big race. He's there in the training room. He's talking with a friend, and this is what he says. Now, in one hour's time, I'll be out there again. I'll raise my eyes and look down that corridor four feet wide with 10 lonely seconds to justify my whole existence. How many of us are doing that? Like tomorrow morning, you're going to try and justify your whole existence. And then when you lay down your head at night, you're going to ask yourself the question, did I? And think of the misery that that brings. Harold Abrams is a miserable man. Even in winning the race, which he does. Sorry, spoiler. <laughs> Look, if you haven't seen it, <laughs> um, even in the midst of winning even in the midst of realizing this goal that he has sacrificed so much for there's no joy there's no joy now how does that play itself out in our play itself out in our own, our own lives, in our own days. You know, come, come tomorrow morning, how might it play itself out? We lose our balance. We go to extremes. We flip from one to the other. We, we, it could be, uh, one extreme would be work is, is absolutely everything. So it's, I'm full on, this is what I'm living for. Or you swing to the other extreme Maybe when you find out, you know, the next month that didn't work so well. So you go to the other extreme, and that is, no, work is not everything, it's nothing. So now we're just working for the weekend. We're just working for the vacation. We're just working for something else because work in and of itself is nothing. At least that's the way we, we you know, we've kind of swung back and, and forth. Is that where you are? The scriptures have a, a whole different paradigm for us here, one that is actually true to how we were made, true to the universe, true to what is, true to what is. And the, the gospel is speaking here to all of life, including especially work. Oh, that we would hear this. Okay, so what do we do? How do we live in this tension? You know, work is good, work is bad, work is good, work is bad. What do I, gracious sakes, how do I go forward uh, with that? Let, let me, if I may, just suggest four pillars or, or four points of a compass, however you want to think about it, okay? Uh, again, that you can find in, in, in the scriptures that are really quite helpful, I think, as an orientation for us. So the first thing being, the follower of Jesus can work with hope in view, with hope in view. 1 Corinthians 15, 1 Corinthians 15, 
Uh, this is a chapter that oftentimes gets read around Easter. It ought to be read every, all, just all the time. Towards the very end of this, as Paul is reflecting on the reality of Jesus' resurrection and in connection with that reality of our own resurrection to come, he then says he's, this makes this astonishing statement, so incredibly encouraging, 1 Corinthians 15, 58, that shows that there is meaning assured in all of our work. Meaning assured in all of our work. Therefore, my beloved brothers, be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that in the Lord your labor is not in vain. And you may be thinking, yeah, but labor in the Lord is like teaching Sunday school. Or that's, you know, doing something for the... No, 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 no. If you're a Christian, you are in Jesus, and therein all your work is in the Lord. Your life is in the Lord. Your life is in the Lord. So this verse is applicable to every disciple of Christ all the time and whatever it is that we put our hand to do. And we have great assurance here that there is meaning, meaning. We can work with such hope, such hope in view. And not only that, with this astonishing hope that in reality, knowing that the curse is going to be reversed, this thing that makes work so bad is going to be unrolled, undone. Everything sad is going to come become untrue. Uh, now, you may be thinking, surely he's going to Revelation now. Eh, I could, but we're going to go to Isaiah. Isaiah chapter 65. Isaiah 65, starting in verse 17. Listen to the words of the prophet. It's so beautiful. For behold, I create new heavens and a new earth, and the former things shall not be remembered or come into mind. But be glad and rejoice forever in that which I create. For behold, I create Jerusalem to be a joy and her people to be a gladness. I will rejoice in Jerusalem and be glad in my people. No more shall be heard in it the sound of weeping and the sound of distress. No more shall there be in it an infant who lives but a few days or an old man who does not fill out his days. For the young man shall die a hundred years old and the sinner a hundred years old shall be accursed. They shall build houses and inhabit them. They shall plant vineyards and eat their fruit. They shall not build and another inhabit. They shall not plant and another eat. For like the, the days of a tree shall the days of my people be, and my chosen shall long enjoy the work of their hands. They shall not labor in vain or bear children for calamity, for they shall be the offspring of the blessed of the Lord and their descendants with them. Before they call, I will answer. While they are yet speaking, I will hear. The wolf and the lamb shall graze together. The lion shall eat straw like the ox and the dust shall be the serpent's food. They shall not hurt or destroy in all my holy mountain, says the Lord. What hope! Knowing that right now, meaning is assured to all of our work and, and the curse that makes it so hard is gonna be undone. We have that hope, that assurance in mind right now. Right now. That's pillar one. Pillar two. With that in mind, we are freed and impelled to work with integrity. Not just with hope, but also with integrity. Uh, Micah chapter 6, 8. Micah chapter 6, 8. This is a, 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 a verse that we oftentimes sing as part of a chorus of a song. Uh, the prophet writes in Micah 6, 8, He has told you, O man, what is good. And what does the Lord require of you but to do justice and to love kindness and to walk humbly with your God? So the prophet, this, and this is just a sampling. Oh my goodness, the number of places that you could look into in the scriptures for, for such teaching. But we see here the need for just and honest dealing. 
for just and honest dealing, no deceit whatsoever in our commerce, either in our buying or our selling, either in our shelling out or in our wages paid out. All is to be done with justice and fairness and equity and mercy across the board, just and honest dealings, working with integrity, diligent also. This is part of integrity. Diligence in our labors. Laziness is a sin. It is to fail to to steward well the gifts that God has given you and you're putting a burden upon the people around you. Laziness is a sin. Laziness is for the follower of Jesus is ruled out as is stealing. Stealing goods from your employer or stealing time by not working when you're being paid to work. So working with integrity, working with hope in view, but working with integrity, working in relationship as well. In every aspect of our lives, as we think about how we engage with one another as servants, as servants. So as servants to those who are over us, whether or not they are worthy of dignity, of respect and honor, but serving those who are over us. And serving those, if I can put it this way, who are under us. Um, not lording our, our power or authority over them, but rather stewarding that power and authority in a way that honors Jesus and honors them. So working with hope in view, working with integrity, working in relationship, and the, the fourth of the four pillars, uh, working quorum deo. Working quorum deo. That is a Latin phrase that... Roughly translated means in the presence of God. So working for God, because of God, through God, to God, in the presence of God. Which means, and no few of you have heard me say this no few times, there is no such line to be drawn between a sacred part of our lives and a secular part of our lives because that line does not exist except in our imagination. There is no sacred versus secular divide. Now, just in Jesus' day, this was completely counter to the time of his day. E even in the Greco-Roman period, the idea was that you know, there was more dignity to mental work as opposed to manual work. Or we would say uh, white collar versus blue collar. There was, there was, uh, it was a dichotomy uh, drawn between those things even in Jesus' day. And sadly, we do that today as well. Likely has a lot to do with why there's such so many, um, such um, unemployment or under underemployment and so many different uh, skill sets across our land. Um, that's a whole topic for a whole other day. But 21st century, 20th and 21st century, we have another dichotomy that we've drawn in the church. And that is to say, there's a dichotomy, a difference between serving Jesus and the other stuff, or between ministry, quote-unquote, full-time ministry, and other work, which we deem to be lesser than. If you really love God, you'll be a missionary, or go to seminary, or take a bunch of Bible classes, and serve a church. And I'm not saying there's anything wrong with those things. I'm saying there's what's wrong is drawing the, dichot the dichotomy, saying that one is better than the other when it's all quorum deo. 
Martin Luther is said to have said to have said. He's said to have said a lot of things, and he did say a lot of things. But anyway, um, the maid who sweeps her kitchen is doing the will of God just as much as the monk who prays. Not because she may sing a Christian hymn as she sweeps, but because God loves clean floors. The Christian shoemaker does his Christian duty not by putting little crosses on the shoes, but by making good shoes. Because God is interested in good craftsmanship. No secular and sacred dichotomy. It doesn't exist, except in our imagination. The gospel frees us to work with hope, to work with integrity, to work in relationship, and to work quorum Deo. Tragically, so many of us do live what we could call a splintered life. So many of these different spheres that rarely ever seem to, to overlap. And it gets very confusing. You know, here's my hobbies and here's my work and here's church and here's my neighborhood and here's my family, here's my friends and the different groupings with all those. And you know how it's kind of weird, like, you, hey, you, you're talking to one person from one realm and then you run into the, like another from another in Walmart and you're kind of like, oh, like you are on the same planet. Um, it's just, we live splintered lives. But tragically, many of us as believers live a splintered faith. We live a splintered faith as though Sunday is one thing and Monday is another. As though here's the stuff that God cares about and here's the stuff he doesn't care about. And that's not the biblical vision. The biblical vision is a one seamless garment where it's all an expression of worship because it's all holy. Everything in your life is holy because you are. You have been separated for his purposes. So everything in your life has been separated. In my life has been separated for his purposes. It all matters to the king who is ruling over all things, who has come to redeem all things. The gospel, the gospel speaks to all of life, including especially our work, how we need to hear this. Now, what does this have to do with the table. What on earth does the last 30 minutes have to do with communion? Jesus, the finished work of Jesus, frees us from the tyranny of living as though what we are determines who we are, as though function determines identity. The finished work of Jesus has broken the tyrannical back of that taskmaster. Now you say, well, how, how is that tyrannical? How does that rule me? How does that dominate me? How does that enslave me? Think how the degree to which we live as though uh, our work drives or, or how, the great, how great our work is, so we think, the degree to which others see our work or notice it and applaud it and affirm it, the degree to which we do our work well or poorly, or what we have to show for it at the end of the day, think of all the different ways that that tyrannizes you and enslaves you and cripples you. And Jesus comes and says, no, no, my friend. <laughs> Fundamentally, who you are has to do with whose you are and what I have done for you in full and completely. 
I live the life you were supposed to live, and I've died the death you deserve to die, and you are mine. You are mine. You are now a citizen of my kingdom. You are now a child of this household, and nothing can change that. Do you see how this is connected to work, and work is connected to the table? We are free to, really, to know what it really is to, to, to serve, to serve our good king, our good, good king. The thing is, we need continual reminders of that. We continually slip slides. Dave said earlier, we leak, you know, our, our brains leak, forgetting these things all the time. We're, we're, we're living in a world that's constantly count, trying to counter-program us in a culture that's counter-programming, um, runs against the grain of, of everything we just said. So we do need these continual reminders of who we really are and how it's not driven at all by what we do. Um, Paul speaks of, of the wonder of all of this in uh, 1 Corinthians 11. 1 Corinthians 11, uh, starting in verse 23. For I received from the Lord what I also delivered to you. The Lord Jesus, on the night when he was betrayed, took bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way also he took the cup after supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood, do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Whoever therefore eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty concerning the body and blood of the Lord. Let a person examine himself then and so eat of the bread and drink of the cup. For anyone who eats and drinks without discerning the body eats and drinks judgment on himself. There is an invitation here the Lord is putting forward to us that we would be reminded and refreshed in all that he has done once and for all for us. And the importance of this is made plain in the warning that Paul puts out here to, to say, friend, if you are not a disciple of Jesus this morning, you're here checking out the claims of Christianity, exploring that, you're in a good place, I trust a safe place, ask your questions, let's talk. Ask your questions. Let's talk. But as the apostle makes clear, of course, it wouldn't make any sense. It wouldn't be proper. It wouldn't be right for you to partake of the bread and the cup over the next few minutes because that's not where your heart is. And we don't want you to feel in any way pressured to do something, but that's not where your heart is. At the same time, Paul is also making clear that if you're a professing Christian, but living at odds with your Savior, that's oftentimes expressed in living at odds with other believers in ways that you know you need to do business with, he also uh, it's making clear that we, we need to let this time go by, repent, uh, approach those individuals, uh, and next time, take of the bread and the cup. We need this. We need this. We need these reminders and this refresher of mind and heart. And it's really a mark of Jesus' love, isn't it? Not just that he went to the cross for us, but that he's given us this sacrament that we might not forget, such as a mark of his love for us. If I could ask the, the elders to come.